I can't tell you how grateful I am to be back at the University of Portland. It's a place that conjures up for me all sorts of memories, happy memories from visits here over the course of the last 20 years. And it's especially significant to me because of relationships that I've developed here uh, with colleagues who I admire greatly. Uh, Professor Karen Eifler, Professor Tom Green, uh, Professor Nora Martin, who's up there somewhere among them, Father Charlie Gordon, uh, all of whom I get to see, and a number of great uh, collegium alums who I see at different places in the audience. So I'm grateful to see uh, all of them here. UP's been a blessing in my life, and I hope that this talk will be a chance to pay that back in part, however inadequately I may do so, uh, compared to what I've been given. I also appreciate the opportunity to give the ZOM lecture uh, to reflect on and perhaps contribute to the aspirations for the intellectual life embodied in the University of Portland. So I hope I can live up even a little bit to Father Zahm's legacy. I'm going to talk about higher education in terms that may not seem to apply at all, uh, may seem to apply to all or many universities, not only to Catholic ones. The contradictions that I mention are no less germane to Catholic universities than to others. It would be a mistake, I think, in Catholic higher education to focus only on the particularities and not on the commonalities shared with other institutions, as if only the particularities, important as they may be, are the things that define Catholic higher education. I'll circle back in the end, as much as I can in a short time, to reflect on how these contradictions are particularly manifest in a Catholic university like UP. I know that the audience here includes faculty and the broader public, but if they'll forgive me, I'd like to direct my comments particularly to students. Talks on, Catholic, on higher education, I think, are pretty dull if they don't take students and put them right at the center of the conversation. While not denying the tremendous importance of the research function of the university, what I'm most passionate about is the education of young people. Since I'm often called to give talks on what a Catholic university should do, and this is the ZOM lecture, I will circle around at the end to answer some of those questions. But I'd say the question before us now is about what it means to be or to become an educated person at this moment in the 21st century. There are certainly themes that would carry over from Father ZOM's time, but others that are particular to our present day context. They and my own quirky experience will set the stage for my choices. I framed the talk around eight contradictions. Ordinarily, I would tell students this is a terrible way to frame a talk. But I hope that as we go along, the choice will make sense to you and you won't find it too unwieldy. At least this way, if three of my points don't catch you, there are five that might. So that would suit me fine. Why contradictions? I don't mean it in the same sense as George Bernard Shaw, the playwright, who once quipped maliciously that a Catholic university is a contradiction in terms. I do intend to turn that upside down before we're done, though. Eight contradictions is meant to provoke, but not to deceive. I could provoke even more by saying that I agree with Oscar Wilde that consistency is the last refuge of the unimaginative. Or even misquote Ralph Waldo Emerson, as I've occasionally heard done, by saying that consistency is the hobgoblin of small minds. I approach contradictions not merely as provocation, but I approach them because contradictions are endemic to human life, not something always to be eliminated. 
We live with values held in tension. We always have to navigate, whether we pay attention to it or not, between values that are held in tension. Ethics, a topic I deal with a lot at the center that I run, is fundamentally about navigating between competing values. If there are no competing values at stake, there's not too much to think about ethically. We have to be discerning people who live in and between the tensions. And as Emerson really said, a foolish consistency is what's problematic. So, contradiction number one. Take responsibility for your own education, but be willing to learn from and let your teachers guide you. Now, what could seem more banal than that first sentence, take responsibility for your own education? In the 1990s, I worked at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, learning and teaching around areas of leadership and authority. I was fortunate to learn from a lot of brighter people than me who developed a method of teaching and learning that depended on, on paying attention to group dynamics. That is, to pay close attention to what is happening within groups as it is happening and naming and learning from it. It was a powerful way to learn, and one of the most powerful things that we witnessed over and over again was how much resistance human beings have to taking responsibility for their own learning. When you see it happen in a group enough times, in enough ways, you start to see that it's generally, genuinely problematic, not simply a cliché. You learn to recognize that individuals and groups enable such resistance all the time. Human beings are pretty good at learning, yes, but from a social psychological perspective, it's equally fascinating to look at how much time we spend resisting learning. Humans are pretty refined at the mechanisms that they have for it. I can't tell you how many times over the years I had to confront students in those courses at Harvard and then later at the College of the Holy Cross, where I am, with evidence of the gap between their espoused claim that they took responsibility for their own education and the reality is I might see it acted out right in front of us. I sometimes got indignant responses, as you might imagine, sometimes denial in the face of evidence, and sometimes just silence. Repeatedly, though, I found in real time in that group dynamic setting that it was a way to help students come to grips with the evidence there, to face something that they might not want to confront about themselves. Now, bright as you surely are, most of you probably don't stand magically above the other students when it comes to taking responsibility for your own education. You too often fail, I suppose, simply because you're human and presumably often fall short of that in ways you don't even notice or perhaps refuse to account for. That can be true even while you're willing to spend who knows how much money and to devote who many, how many years of your life to being in college. So taking responsibility for education can be a cute, confusing suggestion too in our own individualist society. What I mean by that is not simply I get to choose, no one can tell me, it's my choice what I learn. What I mean is about paying, is about not being a full partner in the opportunity that you've been given. I'm not chastising you for it, but merely pointing out that it's part of the human condition that all sorts of talented people fall prey to. Not taking responsibility for your education 
happens when you distance yourself from classes and assignments, treating them as something imposed upon you, something that you work to find shortcuts around, rather than that you try to take up fully. Or when you try to learn just for the exam. Or, and I'd say this is the most pernicious one, expect your professors to package ideas neatly for you in ways that don't make you have to grapple with their complexity. Do your attitudes towards professors say, package things for me really easily so I can get it down for the exam? Or do they say, present it to me in such a way that I have to learn it with you and think about the complications of it deeply so that I have to keep engaging your mind and my mind and so that I can get the best out of you? Well, that's easy to say. It's hard to actually do and to practice in life. Try out what your professors have to teach you that second half of my first contradiction is crucial. I often think metaphorically of trying on ideas, the way one might try on clothes or try on a role in life. Trying to inhabit parts of your professor's intellectual world and the worlds that, of the thinkers that they expose you to. The Holy Cross priests who founded the University of Portland had visions to share. Faculty, both individually and collectively, have visions to share. You, in the end, are the ones who have to sort out what to do with all of that, but the place to start it out with is to really try it on and test it as fully as possible, not to treat it as we all do sometimes as impositions on us. UP has core requirements, core curriculum, majors have requirements, professors often try to draw your attention to subjects and thinkers and things that you might find uninteresting at first glance but things also that could change your, lot, your minds and your lives in the long run. And I see that happen all the time with students who come in and chance upon a course and something that changes their direction. Having been raised in a society that encourages you to think of yourselves as consumers, don't let yourselves approach higher education as a consumer, tempting as it is. If you approach education as if you're paying for a product and buying professors' time, are entitled to pick out just the products, i.e. the courses and ideas that you're coming, that you like. If you're coming to a university uh, mostly for its amenities, are thinking of college education as a credential that you buy, then you're going to come out of here with way less than you deserve. If you've been told that what's most important about college is getting into a good college, getting through it, and collecting a degree, getting a credential, some product, then you've been deceived, and you'll settle for a lot less than you really should. There are going to be times when you get up courses you might not want, but I think even then, treat them as opportunities. In the classroom and in office hours, treat your professors as partners in your learning. That's a pretty rare thing, actually, in my experience over the years. But trying to find intellectual partners and mentors among your professors is a way of taking responsibility that's very different from being a consumer who clicks on a film, which film to watch on Netflix or shops on Amazon and just selects what he or she likes. We live in an age of information access and can be tempted to think that taking responsibility for our own learning means simply being self-reliant. A good deal of learning certainly can happen when you're reading and studying by yourself, but learning is fundamentally a social process. Who we learn with can hold us back or advance us far. 
I mean that in terms of faculty especially, but I also mean that in terms of the students you learn with, how much they challenge and enlighten you, how much you challenge and enlighten them. I'm reminded of a story I heard from an alum of Holy Cross who was a university professor now. When he came to Holy Cross, he would say, to play football. And actually, he did play for the Patriots years ago. And he said, you know, he got in and he was involved in the kids he happened to study with. One of them runs the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Disease, famous doctor. He happened to sit in with a whole bunch of kids. And he said, those kids he studied with, they changed my life. He said, I was just kind of a kid from, from bright kid from Brooklyn who wanted to go to college, but they changed his life, sort of who they were with. More than a century ago, John Henry Newman, before he was a cardinal, summed up this way. The general principles of any study you may learn by books at home, but the detail, the color, the tone, the air, the life, which makes it live in us, you must catch these from those in whom it lives already. Of course you can get some of it from books alone, or even, I dare say, from what's on the internet. But as Newman recognized, the fullness is in one place alone, he said. It is in such assemblages of intellect that books themselves, the masterpieces of human intellect, are themselves originated. So much about learning arises from human interaction and relationships, and building those relationships is important with others. And I think that has to do, that does in fact tie in with uh, taking responsibility for your own learning. Sec contradiction two, run with the hedgehogs and run with the foxes. In a 1953 essay that's still influential today, a Latvian-born Oxford intellectual named Isaiah Berlin made a famous distinction between two types of intellectuals, two types of thinkers and artists. He wrote, this is a long quote. There's a line among the fragments of the Greek poet Archilochus which says, the fox knows many things, but a hedgehog knows one big thing. Scholars have differed about the exact interpretation of these words, which may mean no more that the fox for all his cunning is defeated by the hedgehog's one defense. But taken figuratively, the words can be made to yield a sense in which they mark one of the deepest differences which divide writers and thinkers. And it may be human beings in general. For there exists a great chasm between those on the one side, the hedgehogs, who relate everything to a single central vision. One system, less or more coherent and articulate, in terms of which they understand, think, and feel a single universal organizing principle in terms of which alone all that they say has significant, all that they are and say has significance. And on the other side, the foxes, who pursue many ends, often unrelated and even contradictory, connected if at all only in some de facto way for some psychological and physiological cause related to no moral and aesthetic principle. Foxes lead lives, perform acts, and entertain ideas that are centrifugal rather than centripetal. Their thought is scattered or diffused, moving on many levels, seizing on the essence of a vast variety of experiences and objects for what they are in themselves, without consciously or unconsciously seeking to fit them into or exclude them from any one unchanging, all-embracing, sometimes self-contradictory and incomplete at times, fanatical, unitary individual, unitary inner vision. I can't believe anyone wrote a sentence that long, but there you go. 
Archilochus, he's referring to, seems to refer to the fact that when faced with danger, the fox has a lot of tricks. But the hedgehog has only one, which is to roll himself into a ball, and by that he actually manages to outmaneuver the fox. Each trick serves the other well, except when the hedgehog tries to get the fox. Hedgehogs have big core ideas that they use to interpret and explain the world. Foxes are more prone to second-guessing any single explanation, presuming to look at things from multiple perspectives. Surely you're able to discern already like anyone, that anyone who gives a talk on eight contradictions has not one big idea, and surely belongs in the fox camp, like me. Though I wouldn't say I relate to no moral or aesthetic principle. But I even like to teach and read both ways, learning from foxes and learning from hedgehogs. For example, when I taught sociology of religion, I loved to teach using rational choice models. Those are models that seek to explain how even the religious choices and the growth of religions and the decline of religious groups can be explained by reference to cost-benefit choices of individual believers. It's really an application of rational individualistic, uh, uh, rational thinking uh, from economics. Those perspectives elegantly contradict my own beliefs. They suggest that religious people, the religious beliefs people hold dear can be best explained by examining how they benefit the believers in perfectly rational ways compared to the alternatives. Rational choice theories made a big splash in my discipline in the 90s, and I like to explain them with the fullest benefit of a doubt to help students understand the perspective and even to inhabit it. And I think that they could explain a great deal. I also did the same thing with Durkheim's ideas, Emil Durkheim, who was quite the opposite. He had very powerful explanations about religion as a non-rational phenomenon. And he had a powerful influence on my field. So I liked some of those big ideas and used them and depended on them, actually. They're helpful to me. But over the years, I also worried, in the face of other kinds of evidence, that big ideas like those can run roughshod over the unassimilable details, unassimilable details of everyday religious life. I used, in fact, to be a sociologist who was drawn to big theoretical explanations, hedgehog's ideas, like those of my academic mentor, Peter Berger, who some of the faculty will know. Over time, I saw that the world was too complex to contain them, though, and Berger saw that as well. So today, as a result, as uh, Professor Green indicated, I spend a lot more time looking at comple Catholicism's complexity and particularity around the world. Perhaps some great hedgehog will come along someday to make sense of what I find, but right now I don't see that as my own role. For all that, I still love reading thinkers like uh, Emmanuel Wallerstein in history or Jared Diamond, to name two examples. People who focus attention on one or two big interpretive idea, ideas as interpretive lenses that explain how the world gets to be where it is. They're bold thinkers, and there's something to really enjoy in that. So what does it mean to educate yourself? Where do you stand among the foxes and the hedgehogs? Have you found no big ideas worth anchoring your, your worldview? Are you skeptical about the explanatory power of any single big idea? Do you really want to focus on one big thing and feel the need to drown out the seeming noise that surrounds your intellectual goal? I'd want to encourage you as students to be conscious about trying on both fox and hedgehog perspectives while, we're here, while you're here. Do that with the books you read, the media you seek out, 
and if you can discern it with the professors you choose. Foxes think differently than hedgehogs, and you should explore thinking both ways. If you're a Cora hedgehog, who thinks a lot about how the world boils down to one simple thing, try and encounter some thinkers who will complicate your perspective. Hedgehogs don't, shouldn't want to deceive themselves and really need to try to do that. And if you're naturally a fox, consider developing an academic project that allows you to delve deep into one perspective, maybe a thesis project that allows you to inhabit, to, de to delve into one way of thinking and inhabit it really fully for a time. <coughs> Contradiction three. Build communities that help everyone feel safe and supported. Be ready to question whether safe environments help you learn. I have in mind two conflicting truths here. People learn when they feel safe. People don't learn when they feel safe. In 2018, the first half of my contradiction is a provocative claim. On the face of it, it sounds highly problematic to claim at a Catholic university in an era when we've learned about so many instances where the Catholic Church has violated basic safety expectations to a shocking number of people, or in a world where immigrants and many other people are sometimes made to feel unsafe and unwelcome anywhere they go, to take just two examples, it's hard to think that safety could be anything but a pure virtue. I've experienced the need for safe environments. I've accompanied students and friends who were truly threatened. I've witnessed trauma and its long-term effects, the way it can shut down human beings whose safety has been fundamentally violated. But I also know, too, that we live in an era dominated by fear. People are more afraid of crime than ever. It never helps when I point out to them all the data that says how much safer we are, at least most of the places I am, than when I was growing up. All the data is there, and it's pretty powerful. And people say, no, 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 it's much more dangerous today. You don't understand. Parents are afraid for their kids. As children, they're watched over more than ever. And parents who let kids roam unguarded are demonized. My brother, sister, and I always said the best part of our childhood in a small town was just disappearing in the morning and coming home for dinner and being able to do that. Today, I'm pretty sure my mother would be arrested if she were to allow us to do that. As a college educator, I see how much more parents fear today for their children's job prospects. I hear so frequently that maybe in the past it was one way, but today there's no wiggle room. An only study that leads directly to a job is worthwhile. Anything else is dangerous or it's a waste. I teach at a liberal arts college. I was looking at data some time ago that only 6% of Americans say that they would consider a liberal arts college for their kids because it's just sort of too risky. Americans too often live in fear of one another, whether the other is an immigrant or elites or people whose ideological views we hold suspect. We've proven susceptible in the present time to the worst sort of fear-mongering. I'm aware that a culture, in a culture, I'm aware that a culture of increasing emphasis on safety hasn't made us feel more safe. It appears that young people suffer from increased levels of depression and anxiety despite the protection that parents give. So let me be clear that I couldn't be more important for institutions and communities of friends 
to create safe, supportive environments for each other. How you think of doing that is really important. At the same time, doing that group dynamics work that I started talking about earlier, I learned how much safety, as often as not, gets in the way of learning. How much being sort of comfortable in there, we're willing to sort of sail along with it and not challenge it. That happens when we find safe niches, niches with like-minded people, in contexts where we avoid bringing up ideas that challenge each other because we want to be supportive. In those cases, ideas remain untested and lost to other people. They're withheld from the, from the environment. We can feel inappropriately complacent with the ideas we hold because no one does us the favor of challenging them, at least as at least ought to happen in an academic environment. In settings I know of where the most learning takes place, people take risks at putting ideas out and having them critiqued and challenged. They prepare themselves to feel uncomfortable, a bit unsafe intellectually. I remember several times in my leadership and authority class when I did that at Holy Cross, doing an exercise where each of my undergraduate students had to write a helpful, on-target critique of every other student in the class. Something really designed to get students to pay attention in the group and to help the recipients of that feedback hear what they have to learn if they want, what they have to know if they want to learn. Each student, I told them, would be graded on the quality of the feedback they offered, and I would share the collected feedback with the students. So if you wrote something, I'd share it with all your peers. They were kind of challenged by that request. <laughs> and they just wanted to be friends with each other. That was my job to critique. And then they could ignore that in some cases, because that was just about me in class on authority. That was another thing you could delve into. I think that's the moment, though, when they got some of that, that for many of those students, they came to terms with the particularity of their learning avoidances when they heard it from other people over and over in those feedback, not simply from me. The point is, their desire for friendship, and our students are very good at that at Holy Cross, their success at safety and support, conceived only in one limited way, kept them from learning the most about what they may have needed to learn for each other until somebody came along and pushed them at it a little bit. Those of us who teach or lead have to learn how to turn up and turn down the heat to encourage learning to regulate and challenge students' sense of intellectual safety, to keep it in a productive range. But so too do students need to learn how, a bit, how to turn the heat up or down at times in class as well. For some people who have been traumatized, finding and establishing a comfort zone is extremely important and is a genuine accomplishment. But unless you're in that circumstance, it's really necessary and appropriate to ask how you manage to step out of your comfort zone so that you can learn. If you want to move forward in your life at your full capacity, if you want to improve the world, you'll have to learn how to navigate kinds of danger. If you find a nice, safe cocoon with circles of friends who you feel most at ease with, you won't learn about the experiences of others. I want kindergartners to feel safe, and even eighth graders. And I wish more than I could tell you that high school students could feel safe in their schools physically. College students, though, I want to feel challenged and to learn how to respond to challenge. I want to see you build up your own and each other's resilience. Contradiction four, recognize your privilege. 
savor your privilege. In the last several years, one of the discourses of higher education has entailed calling out privilege. In one sense, that's really healthy. In another sense, I find it not. It can call us to reflect honestly about where we stand, who we are in the world, before we speak, or it can be a weapon to silence people. I kind of worry that privilege has become a dirty word. I might even compare it to the way socialist was a dirty word until a few years ago, one of the worst bombs that any politician could throw at any other politician, until, to my shock, some old Jewish guy from Vermont came along and managed to restore it to a place in American political life, which I would have thought was absolutely impossible. I hesitate to talk about privilege at all, but I hope that in doing so, I can bring one aspect of it, of that word, back to life, to keep it from being only a dirty word. Now, as I say this, I know full well that power and advantage are not distributed evenly among the students here. I can readily locate myself in the hierarchies of race, gender, class, sexuality, and more, for anyone who needs to know that. I thought about the contradiction of privilege recently on reading an interview with the playwright Lucy Thurber, who grew up very poor in my part of the country. My experience at an elite liberal arts college, she wrote, was shocking to me in a wonderful way. To be in a place where people did not need to lock their doors, and not just because they weren't afraid of people stealing, but because they weren't afraid of who might come into their room at night. Suddenly I found myself in a foreign land of unfathomable safety and plentiful resources. I had no bearings or examples of how to operate within it. Suddenly my day was supposed to be about getting to class, deciding what to wear, and doing homework, as opposed to worrying about how to get warm, where to find food later, or how to avoid someone threatening me or my mother with violence. The passage is jarring because it reminds us of the forms of deprivation and unsafety that Thurber had previously endured and the scars that they left. And it reminds, me, reminds us of, to go back to the last one, the kinds of safe community that colleges and universities do need to create. No matter what background you come from, though, college is a privilege. To have that experience is such a great privilege in the best sense and something not to squander. I'm perhaps especially aware of it because in college I didn't have as much time carved out as I would have hoped for. I typically had to work as many as 20 hours a week during the school year, so perhaps I recognize the prescience of that time even more. But I also grabbed at college as a privilege, even if it wasn't the elite school that I'd really wanted to attend. Later in the same piece I just read to you, Thurber writes that much as the privilege and joy of college was real to her, quote, my language, my mode of being, was very foreign to the other students I met, who could not believe my utter fascination with the salad bar at lunch. <laughs> Ultimately, I made incredible friends, and that institution changed my life, but it was a jagged beginning. I experienced panic attacks and PTSD. I felt ugly and isolated because I did not know the culture of this place of luxury or how to blend in with it. It wasn't until fairly recently that I accepted that this other life I built was not borrowed or temporary. Thurber's definition of privilege, is, privilege focuses a bit more on college amenities 
plentiful resources, luxury, than on the privilege to learn. But the privilege that I'm talking about and care about most is not the best field house, though it's great that you have the Beauchamp Center. It's not the dorms or whatever else. It's the gift of time and space and access to great minds and thoughtful people. That's the privilege I'm talking about. I want to have you hold on to that fact, that the fact that a college education is a privilege because I believe that every privilege comes with responsibility. I want more people from previously underrepresented groups to share in the privilege and to want to share that privilege further with others to create the conditions that make it possible. Thurber shares in that latter section of the quote that I gave you some of the ways that she did not know what to do with privilege. It took her time to learn how to inhabit privilege well, and the process was difficult. But in one sense, I don't think Thurber stands apart from most of us. She stands ahead of us in being able to recognize privilege when she sees it, but like all of us, she has to learn to think about what to do with privilege. I think that's true of almost every person who gets it. Perhaps you'll tell me, given experiences like Thurber's, that privilege is not a word that can be recovered in a world of such great inequality. So let me try another word, one that I mean in a deliberately theological sense. Gift. What you've been given by others who make it possible for you to be here, the founders, the teachers, the benefactors, the family members, people who work to support you here, is a gift. The intellectual abilities that you have, the fortune of circumstances that allow you to be here in a world that far too often conspires to squander talent and not give so, so many people a chance, these two are gifts. Even if you've worked hard to be here, being here is a gift. Particularly as I think about it in a theological sense, a gift is not something to be squandered. And a gift, if we recognize it as such, is never something to lord over others precisely because it's a gift. It's not earned, it's simply given to me. It's not something we're titled, entitled to. As I say, in, um, I recognize that you've worked hard to be here and I don't want to diminish that. But I've seen so many places in the world where people work hard but are not given the same opportunities. And that's what makes me think about privilege and gift. In the theological sense, recognizing that we've been given a gift leaves no room for entitlement. To think of ourselves as entitled is merely to deceive ourselves. And to see it as a theological gift is to say that it is given with a purpose to be used well and to be shared with others. Checking privilege does no good if it disables anything but self-entitlement and misuse of the gifts we're given. I hope you see yourselves as people who have been given many gifts and think about how you want to respond. The gifts here are particularly intellectual space and time for growth, so use the time for that. Contradiction five, it's all about you. It's not about you at all. This contradiction is a correlate of the last contradiction about college as a privileged place, so I'll make it brief, though it's worth stating. College is a privileged time because, in some sense, it is all about you. I don't mean that as a marketing slogan. I bet you there are lots of schools that say something like that. It is about you in terms of apartness from your future work life, separation from your future work life, especially at a teaching institution, too, 
Your professors are expected to look after your intellectual development. And many people are here to help you look after other needs of development. There are counselors who help you look after your mental well-being if you need that. There are exercise facilities. There are student affairs personnel who look to develop your leadership capacities. They're here to help you reach your potential or perhaps even to become something, someone you didn't think possible or hadn't imagined. But it's not all about you. Education has to be for a larger outward purpose. I see it as a kind of herd immunity, like a flu shot. If you get your flu shot or other immunization, it doesn't only protect you, it even protects those around you who might have been too lazy to get a flu shot or not able because the fact that you don't get sick means you can't pass that disease on to someone else, to the rest of the herd. We do get educated because it benefits us. But privilege brings obligations that require humility, boldness, and generosity. If you believe that your education really matters and you believe it's a gift, who does it matter for? Yourself, yes. And how for others? Do you think now about what an other-centered educational commitment would look like? Figure out who and what is worth giving the gift that's been given to you. Contradiction six. An education that doesn't deeply explore the power of at least one religious tradition and religion's role in shaping human history does us a disservice. Education that doesn't confront the arguments against belief is no less a disservice. Ironically, having committed months ago to too many contradictions in my talk, I'm not going to develop this one fully. Though I have tried to set it out clearly in what I gave you concisely in the summary above. By virtue of its history and driving beliefs, UP hopes in particular that its students will explore at least one religion, Catholic Christianity, with some seriousness. In the face of ongoing revelations about the profound failures of so many Catholic leaders, 2018 may actually seem like the worst time to be standing here talking about exploring Catholicism, Christianity, or religion at all. And you may be at the point in your life anyway where you think uh, Christianity or any faith has very little to offer. But maybe today, I would suggest, is the best time to be looking at it. A chance to cut through the cant and to really get at the heart of the matter. Honest inquiry into faith for educated people means facing up to the arguments against it and the challenges to it. Religion has been a driving force in history, a source of meaning in life. To understand the world requires understanding that. Certainly when I grew up in a lot of graduate programs, uh, my first academic field was international relations, and people sort of thought that was religion had no part in it for a long time. It was simply a sideshow. And then came, well, then came Iraq, uh, Iran, and then came the rise of the evangelicals in the U.S. if you're in politics, and then there was all sorts of religious resurgence in the world where people said, uh-oh, we can't understand the world without understanding that. Compare my claim that this is a good time to study and get involved in the life of faith to the need many people feel at this moment in history to get involved in politics. Government institutions, too, are failing us, and we may be disgusted, but it's exactly the right time to think about getting involved in them, not to walk away, to think about what are the truest and best forms of living our lives together and to help bring them into being. Use your time here to explore those religious traditions and their contradictions and their fullness. 
so that you can better ask how to live, whether from the perspective of eternity or from the perspective of human finitude. Contradiction seven. Learn to think critically. Embrace the experience of wonder. Some years ago, back at the College of the Holy Cross, where I teach, I led a group of younger faculty alongside our now provost, Margaret Frigi, to develop a document that would help us to think about what it meant to be a Catholic, Jesuit, all-undergraduate liberal arts college. We already had quite a remarkable, non-cliched mission statement. But by the time we began the process, it was 15 years old. Nobody under a certain age had been involved in it. So we wanted to supplement that by inviting people to think about what it meant for themselves. The one thing that I heard in that process, first and foremost, from every person in the group, loud and clear, was that we should emphasize that education is about learning students, uh, helping students learn to think critically. And indeed, whenever I talk to faculty about the purposes of higher education, teaching critical thinking skills is right at the fore. Now, the funny thing I learned from our faculty, and the reason I related that, is that when we tried to spell out what critical thinking meant in a few paragraphs, we didn't actually agree on what it was. Nonetheless, we all said critical thinking was the sine qua non. It was the first paragraph, the thing that we had to talk about, the thing that higher education should impart. And I'd be shocked if the faculty at UP didn't agree. So while at UP, students need to learn to think critically, to systematically question taken for granted truths, and to move past accepting things on the basis of authority. Let me give you one example of how one person who's not from academe wrote about its value. In a short essay earlier this year titled, How Philosophy Prepared Me for a Career in Finance and Government, Robert Rubin, a future bank CEO, former bank CEO and Secretary of the Treasury of the United States, described what he valued about his humanities education, particularly what he experienced in a sophomore philosophy class of all things. He cited a professor who changed his life in a quietly unfolding way. This professor was, quote, a genial little man with white hair and an exceptional talent for engaging students from the lecture hall stage, using an overturned wastebasket as his lectern. He would use Plato and other great philosophers to demonstrate that proving any proposition to be true in the final and ultimate sense was impossible. His approach to critical thinking planted a seed in me, Rubin wrote that grew during my years at Harvard and throughout my life. The approach appealed to what was probably my natural but latent tendency towards questioning and skepticism. I concluded that you can't prove anything in absolute terms, from which I extrapolated that all significant decisions are about probabilities. Internalizing the core tenet of Professor Demis's teaching, weighing risk and analyzing odds and trade-offs, was central to everything I did professionally in the decades ahead in finance and government. Now, Rubin's example is hardly the most radical I can think of. Some professors I know mean by critical thinking that students should be caught, taught to question the whole structure of capitalist society that Rubin did such a good job commanding and preserving during the financial crisis a decade ago. So you can see what I mean about my faculty colleagues not all agreeing with each other about what critical thinking means. But it does speak to a value of critical thinking. It also suggests that critical reasoning is not the same as lazy skepticism. It's about systematically looking at what you can know and what you can't know, what you implicitly assume, and then thinking through the implications of that. 
Systematically questioning taken-for-granted truths and moving past accepting things on authority alone is actually hard to do consistently in our lives. We all have many biases. We're good at looking critically at the things we don't like and maybe not so good at the things we do. I've been trained most of my academic career to value critical thinking. I believe deeply in the value of questioning received ideas, authority, and wisdom, especially where these things are used as tools of power and advantage over others. And I'd say to undergrads without any hesitation that if you don't come out of here learning how to think critically in all sorts of ways, you've settled for far less than you should have. Paul Ricoeur, a now deceased celebrated philosopher at the University of Chicago, coined a phrase for how academics should approach texts through a hermeneutic of suspicion. Hermeneutics is the philosophical word for the study of texts. Hermeneutics of suspicion is a fundamental belief that we should read a text with caution, even skepticism, determined to test every claim and proposition against such humanly defined standards as the light of reason or the evidence of history. I mention the hermeneutics of suspicion not simply because I want to be the sort of pedant who takes a simple idea and dresses it up with jargon, but for another purpose. But before I address that, I wonder if we could stop for a moment and ask ourselves about the moment we do live in. We live in a skeptical time. Americans are skeptical and critical, not without reason, of churches, of every branch of government, the police, experts, universities, the healthcare system, all things I dare say that both fail us and that serve us quite well at many times, though at different times and in different ways. I'm not here to argue about whether we should be skeptical, but to suggest that our skepticism signals a need for giving more thought to the second half of the contradiction that I just suggested. Could it be, as the great educational philosopher Karen Eifler once suggested to me when we talked about doing this lecture, that in a world of too much cool, we need more wonder and magic? Full disclosure, A, she has heard me talk about wonder before, which I think what got me invited, and B, I wasn't just teasing her by leaving the subject till the end. The poet Billy Collins, who's an alumnus of the College of the Holy Cross where I teach, illustrates the dilemma better than I can in a poem called Introduction to Poetry. He writes, I ask them to take a poem and hold it up to the light like a color slide, or press an ear against its hive. I say, drop a mouse into a poem and watch him probe his way out or walk inside the poem's room and feel the walls for a light switch. I want them to water ski across the surface of a poem, waving at the author's name on the shore. But all they want to do is tie the poem to a chair with rope and torture a confession out of it. They begin beating it with a hose to find out what it really means. So students, have you in some way been taught that torturing a confession out of it, finding out what it really means, is the only thing educated people do to poems, or to literature, or art, or mathematical or scientific problems? In talks to faculty about this, I've, also suggest, I've often suggested that what we also need to do for our students today is to offer them something I'd christen in light of recur as a hermeneutics of wonder, 
a way of getting you to approach a text or a problem that seeks to inhabit it and explore it with boundless curiosity, a curiosity that does not mean only solving it. Faculty actually resonate with that a lot when I've talked about it. They recognize the losses that are entailed with only inhabiting a world of critique. Critique is cool. It can make you feel really powerful. But that power can also delude you and blind you to all the other things that there are to see. It can fool you into thinking that solving is all you need to do, that you should find the answer so that you can ignore the thing itself and move on. I was thinking of a mathematician friend that we were just talking about who says sometimes that's what will get frustrated. He wants mathematics students to not want to do that, but people want to get to the problem set and just find the answer. And he thinks that's the least in interesting thing about mathematics. And he's a pretty fabulous mathematician. So, um, uh, so even in that area, he would agree with me. I think that to be an educated, sentient being who pays attention to the world requires being able to wonder at the world, or a poem, or a complex biological structure. Wonder is the beginning of inquiry, much like curiosity. It should grasp us whole. The philosopher Jerome Miller makes the point that, quote, the experience of wonder is the beginning of all human inquiry because wonder makes the why spring to our lips. It prevents us from living inside our own little worlds because it's outside directed. It makes everything we already know pale into insignificance. Wonder of its very nature is an eruption of the numinous into human life. Wonder is about that which transcends us and also transforms us in our way of thinking. It steps beyond what we take to be given about the world. It can also be about facing something joyful and enlightening, and it can bring us face to face with what we don't know, with fear. When I consider some of the words <coughs> that would accompany a hermeneutic of wonder, awe, grace, gift, longing, passion, mystery, revelation, they seem especially life-giving to me and ultimately deeply spiritual. They seem like words to live by and words to learn by. One of my fears today is that our present emphasis on the hermeneutics of suspicion taken alone paralyzes young people from hoping that they can improve the world in meaningful ways. Don't let that happen. Wonder, for obvious reasons, takes me back to one of the functions of the Zom lecture, whose mandate is in part to think about the university's mission in terms of its Catholic commitments. I think that wonder begins to do that in a way that should be able to engage people of a variety of faiths or no faith commitment. And I'm fully aware that the capacity to wonder does not lead everyone in a straight line towards doctrinal faith. Wonder should be valued at any university for that reason, but certainly ought to be at a Catholic university a foundational good without which nothing good, nothing of value is possible. It ought to be equal in value to critical thinking. And without it, I think, any Catholic identity is hollow. Some of us will be led to religious faith through it, others not, even if we explore wonder with utmost seriousness. But I'm helped by reading lines from Mary Oliver's poem, The Summer Day, 
In it, she writes, I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. It's a wonderful juxtaposition. She says she doesn't know what a prayer is. She doesn't even claim she does it, even as she describes something to me that is the foundation of prayer. She pays attention deeply and wonders at what she sees. I didn't know that Professor Green was going to start us with Mary Oliver, too, so it's very good. Elsewhere, Mary Oliver tells us attention is the beginning of devotion, and I'm comfortable with that. What is it that you're asked as an educated person to do with contradictions? Maybe from a personal psychological perspective, you might need at times to ignore them. Some would say, as I've said before, that you need to resolve them. But I'd ask you to just live with them. Not in simple relativism, but in full engagement with their power and their demands. What about the University of Portland then and its mission? I said I'd get to that at the end. As a university, and particularly as a Catholic university, the University of Portland lives in all the contradictions I've named. Think about hedgehogs and foxes. Is the university best off as a fox, an institution that knows many things, that, to quote Berlin again, pursues many ends, often unrelated and often contradictory, connected, if at all, only in some de facto way, related to no moral or aesthetic principle that is centripetal, not centrifugal? That's the ideal of the modern research university, in many respects, that the university doesn't stand for anything but exploration wherever it goes. Or should UP, again to quote him, quote, relate everything to a single central vision, one system, less or more coherent or articulate in terms of which they understand, think, and feel, a single universal organizing principle in terms of which alone all that they are and say has significance, like Berlin's hedgehog. Wouldn't a Christian vision be that central vision? Shouldn't UP embrace that? A university like the University of Portland has to offer you a hedgehog's vision and a fox's. It has to offer as thoughtfully and eloquently as possible a Christian vision and it needs to show you the complexity of that fox's worldview. It has to give you a chance to test that worldview and to see the other views. It has to stand for one thing and let you test for another. It's opposite. A university like UP has to provide you with safety and build community, but challenge you in appropriate ways that make you feel uncomfortable. It has to help you acknowledge and make the best out of a privilege, a gift, and not teach you to use it as a source of power and self-aggrandizement over others. It has to dedicate itself to you at the same time it teaches you not to live just for yourselves. It has to foster both critique and wonder. Now I don't say all these things because I think that the president, provost, and faculty will suddenly realize tonight that they have to start doing all these things tomorrow. Though it's always good to start drawing people's attention to the contradictions, to have our attention brought to name them. 
I say all this to point out that the University of Portland is inevitably a contradiction in itself. Indeed, it's the eighth of the contradictions I'll point out tonight. UP, its students, administration, and faculty has to live with and in the contradiction to navigate it, which is not easy, but which certainly makes life a lot more interesting. Contradictions, as I said at the beginning, are part of the human condition. Solving the contradiction for the university is never the goal. Some contradictions are just meant to be lived, not solved. Thank you. We really want to thank Dr. Landy, whether we're hedgehog pilots or fox pilots, for helping kick off an academic year in which we hope you are safe, but not always comfortable, puzzled, and full of wonder, whatever you do. Have a great year, and thanks again for coming out tonight. <laughs>